Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to CTN. To learn more about the show, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. So topic today is delivering on the 2021 CISO agenda. So for this new year, 2021, we have to look at things differently. Perhaps we will never go back to where we came from because of pandemic and things are still morphing. So what do CISOs need to do differently? Will they be able to enable a business-driven cyber strategy? Will they be able to take on a broader role? How are they going to gear up for it? Would the budgets really fit with what they need to achieve? And would that ever be justified to the business as something tied to the business growth and or improved risk management? How are they going to get very hard to find talent? and then retain them and pay them the money that they want or in other ways motivate them to keep working along their side as they help the business. A lot of questions here, but let's dig in. So to discuss this, I have uh, Arun D'Souza, who is the CISO with Nextier Automobile. Hey, Arun, how are you? Good, Sanjay. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And Jake Margolis, CISO, Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Hey, Jake, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How about yourself? Very good, sir. Thank you. So let's set the stage. So Arun, I'll start with you. What new or different security challenges do you think we should expect to tackle in 2021? And from the ones which are, we are already tackling now, which ones will bleed in there into the new year? And they have been chronic, but will what we'll be dealing with and to what degree do you feel optimistic that you'll crack those problems? Okay, thanks, Sanjok. Uh, the following security challenges will continue to be critical in the manufacturing industry and the industry at large. Uh, and they can lead to stuff like production downtime, loss of revenue, customer trust, reputation, and so on, right? So it is a CISO is important to monitor these risks and deploy proactive control strategies. In particular, phishing, ransomware, internet of things, supply chain and third party risk and privacy concerns. Phishing is the one that probably is most easily controlled uh, if you have a good email security platform. The other ones will probably bleed over into next year and ongoing because they vary uh, in ransomware, there are variants of all kinds. The Internet of Things is a particular concern to me because those devices come without proper security controls, things like embedded security credentials, patching is not up to date and very old firmware. And the supply chain and third-party risk across the enterprise ecosystem is something that is always a concern, especially in manufacturing, because there's so many entry points and so many levels. And the last one, privacy concerns, I think that's going to hang around now. and It's going to actually expand the concern as a CISO, CFO, CIO, because of regulations such as the GDPR. Some of the things that we have already seen in the recent past, stuff like the Garmin and Honda data breaches that affected them significantly with a lot of downtime. And I think ransomware is the one thing that I fear the most in manufacturing. 
So Jake, what, what have you seen, which is maybe I'm sure some of the things which Arun mentioned uh, must be resonating, but what more have you seen, which we should be concerned about and, and or be getting up for? Well, I think uh, the fishing thing is, is that's a perpetual problem. That's never going to go away. It's, it's always on the top, top five attack vectors. And part of that is because we kind of have to accept this reality that we could spend billions of dollars on cybersecurity and all it takes is an end user who has to have a wallpaper click on the wrong link. Um, and the secure email gateways get better, but I'll, I'll take another step towards um, phishing and business email compromises and supply chain risk and tie those all together. Because I think that's becoming more prevalent because it's hard, um, it's hard for an attacker to defeat some of these next gen securities that are out there. So they're always looking for ways to sidestep them. And I'm seeing uh, uh, what's, what's interesting and what's trending is that they compromise your supply chain and then you get emails from your supply chain about things like, hey, we need to change your uh, um, wire transfer instructions or go to this website to view this invoice, but you're gonna have to use your Office 365 credentials to log in and users fall for that. Um, and it, partly because the attacker is exploiting a trust. And so I think there's going to be a, an increase on social engineering uh, because it works and, and they're exploiting trust that users have developed with their third-party vendors. I think we're going to see more and more of that um, because it's lucrative and it's easy um, as long as they know your supply chain and, and how they can take advantage of that. Um, and, and there's a challenge with the supply chain as well is there's no real technology we can deploy easily, let's just say, that's going to stop or defend that. We can defend ourselves but how do you defend somebody else's network? And really it's not your responsibility to. So when you're talking about dealing with members in your supply chain, it really comes down to is what legal teeth can I put into my agreements um, that can make the supply chain more pliable as far as my cybersecurity defensive posture goes. And I'm wondering if 2021 is gonna start having a little bit more of those mutual kind of arrangements. Whereas we may say, hey, if you have a breach, I want you to tell me in 24 hours, but is the members of our supply chain going to hit us back with the same conditions and contractual language saying, well, if you have a breach, you need to let me know in 24 hours. And so I think we're going to see a lot more in the legal frontier in 2021, because there's a lot of questions that come up on, you know, what can you do beyond the limits of your technological boundary when it comes to defending yourself? Um, and I think that that's, that's the big one um, and, and the big questions to ask. And there's a lot of people asking those right now. Um, and as far as the other things that we're seeing, I 100% agree. Ransomware is going to continue because it works. So they're going to continue to use it. Um, and then we're, I think we're going to see more and more of a shift to cloud-centric technologies, more of these EDR platforms that work in the cloud to, um, so that we don't have to bring traffic back to our data centers for traffic inspection. So I think organizations that were traditionally on-prem, I think, are more and more and more going to be shifting to uh, cloud-centric technologies um, for front-facing applications, which is going to present its own set of challenges for data security, data loss prevention, and uh, end-user support. So we have been covering this, this whole cybersecurity space since 2003, since the show started. And we saw the pendulum. Initially, it was swinging to the side where security leaders were fairly confident and said, you know what, I will not let these intruders come in and I'm going to secure the fort. After that, that confidence dwindled and they said, you know what, I'm not sure if I can control them because 
this is getting out of hand and I don't have enough speed and power and the resources to be able to do that. Then it came back again because people said, oh, we have AI now. A human doesn't need to do it. So maybe we will have AI help prevent phishing attacks. Maybe it'll prevent ransomware, et cetera. And then people started talking about AI on the bad guy side and AI on the good guy side. They will both fight the war. So Arun, coming to you, what I just mentioned as the different phases of evolution or confusion in some cases, what do you think is going to happen in 2021? Are the people who are the bad people who are trying to cause us harm, are they going to get smarter or they'll have an edge over us? Or are we looking at taking the AI and other tools and techniques that we are evolving, we will be at par with them or we'll be ahead of them? What, what's your crystal ball saying? Uh, I think we'll probably battle them to a close to a draw and the pendulum will shift from either side. But I wanted to just pick up on something that Jake said, uh, business email compromise is the number one threat vector, not only phishing. So com- companies need to do more with things like controls like DMARC, DKIM, recipient handling, and so on, because that's one way to make sure the enterprise level, we are validating the trust of different organizations. In response to your question, I think basically AI and ML all sounds very beautiful, but it's nothing is going to be running itself. AI, my particular concern is its predilection for bias. How do you neutralize that bias and make sure the AI is working correctly? So I think what it's going to take is a broad-based length, breadth, and depth uh, collaboration and federation across the enterprise ecosystem, just as in the case of phishing, like we were talking earlier, where companies are going to have to work together, ally. I'm already seeing that across different vendor, uh, actually banding together in these coalitions like the SkyTeam Alliance for frequent flyers and the airlines. There's something called the Spectra Alliance, which includes CrowdStrike, uh, Okta, Proofpoint, and Optiv. And what they're trying to do is to make sure that they're complementing the strengths of each other, share intelligence in real time, so to help companies have the power of the coalition to whatever pieces you have. I think it's going to take that to the first level, deeper control strategies, the second level, closer federation. And the third thing, I think, you know, as a CISO, we need to partner very closely with the business to align business strategy along with cyber strategy to mitigate their enterprise risks because at all times the CISOs, we are balancing the fulcrum between value protection and value creation. And it's very, very important to maintain a proactive control stance because as technologies evolve, it's incumbent on both us on this side of the fence to use it to protect and repel the you know the digital marauders if you will so i think it's you can't rest on your laurels the threats will keep coming they'll keep evolving and they'll keep finding threat vectors you shut one door they'll find a chink elsewhere so i think it's really at all times the CISO developing adaptive proactive control strategies aligned with the business and with the larger federation with your partners and service providers as well and last of all your partners and service providers are close allies to you. Keep them close to you. Meet with them. Involve them in your strategy because many times they have resources and skills you do not have. So, Jake, when you look at what all we're dealing with, and I'm sure it's not going to get any easier, but 
even at the business level, it's all you know morphing. It's 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 changing by the day. With that said, yes, we have an agenda and we have that vision that the CISOs will be enabling a business-driven business, cyber strategy. With that said, when the business is changing and the cyber uh, security-related landscape is changing, the way those intruders, they are changing their strategy when everything is so in flux. Can you truly build something which is business-driven and please those executive management folks up there? Um, I don't know that it's our job to please them. I think it's our job to advise them on risk and help them to make really good uh, risk-based decisions. But rest assured that the decision relies with them. So we can say, hey, you probably shouldn't uh, you know, enable this particular uh, group of people to work remote because of what they work with or you know, the intellectual property is going to be at risk or whatever the case may be. You know, fill in the blank with the high-risk item. Uh, what it really comes down to is they need to be informed. And I think sometimes uh, we, need to not, we need to not be timid. We need to be bold when we go to executive management and tell them honestly and frankly, you know, what the risk is that they're looking at and so that they can weigh it out. Because there's, I really, I heard this from a Gartner rep a long time ago is that there's no right or wrong decision. There's the risk-based decision. And coming from a military background, I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. Because sometimes you're presented with things that are, there's just no great decision. You have to make the least risk impactful decision. And, and I think that's true in business. And, and so I would, I would say that uh, we're not there to make them happy. We're there to be their trusted advisors. And uh, but we're also not there to be roadblocks to innovation. And I know that you've, you mentioned 2003 uh, when you first got into this uh, talk on cybersecurity. Well, you know, that talk. Back then, there was also that we're not we're not going to talk to the security guys because they're just going to tell us no, and that's how we ended up with years of bad code, right? That <laughs> people have put on the enterprise, and so I think we still need to be mindful that we don't want to go back to those dark days where people didn't talk to security, and the fact that they're talking to us um, is a good thing, and we want to continue to foster that relationship and that trust with the business. Um, and I found that that works at the organization I'm at now. I found with previous organizations just having those frank conversations. And being willing to understand the financial and operational risk as well as the uh, cyber threat risk that's associated with any particular business transaction or process is really important. And it's a, it's a composite of all of that risk mitigation that's going to get us to, the, to that sweet spot and where we feel like we, t- we can tolerate what it is we're doing. Um, I think to get ahead of the business processes to a certain degree, too, is Cyber needs to learn how we can complement them. You know, I mentioned them just a few minutes ago. We need to start looking at stronger procurement language with within our contracts, right? Stronger contracting language. I mean, within our procurement processes on how to um, better uh, mitigate risk that can be associated with um, potential business email compromises that start in our supply chain. Uh, maybe we enforce a policy across the organization that says all email internally has to be digitally signed, so that if you don't get a digitally signed email it's not a legit email um, to prevent somebody from uh, pretending to be somebody within the organization so that there's that visual indicator that it's a legit email when an employee gets it. Uh, maybe it's a business process we help refine and say, hey, anytime somebody tells you you're going to change your wiring instructions by internal policy, you have to let them know that that's a 10 business day transaction for cooling off place before we all respond to those kind of transactions because those are financial transactions and we want voice verification and we need time for the, the desk to settle. And that 
you know, most attackers are only sitting on those fraudulent accounts for a couple of days. And so there's a lot of things that we can uh, implement that aren't, aren't technology driven to a certain degree. So sometimes we can be friends with the business by saving money and looking at things that don't cost a lot of money. Um, and also by maximizing the value proposition, you know, with, with using those technologies that are in alliance packs with one another, um, because you're getting more uh, financial bang for your buck when you're investing in that suite of technologies because they're complementary and they're going to provide you better uh, results at the end when you're talking about detections and remediation. So I think there's a few things we can do, but it's always, to me, it always boils down to is advising on risk, um, helping them streamline the process. So in a way, we're still kind of pseudo IT professionals and where we're trying to improve efficiency, um, but by applying security controls in that efficiency gain. And then the last thing would be is developing the value proposition for the services that we provide. Um, you know, one example I can give you that we're doing is we do two-factor authentication and we're pushing that out heavily with these tokens that we've issued to employees uh, that use a PKI cert. At first they said, well, this is costing us money, but now they see the value proposition because employees don't have to use passwords anymore. That They're happier that they can just log in without a password. And the more we get that deployed, the happier they are. So to me, that's an example of a value proposition and an efficiency gain um, that we can communicate easily to the business. And those are the kind of wins that we have to look for. So Arun, um, Jake used this golden word risk, right? And when you talk about risk, it's, it's seen historically businesses view of risk and how a security leader looks at it has not always matched. So who wins in this tug of war of the risk propensity or rather the, the risk uh, calibration or rich benchmarks, whose benchmarks prevail? Should it be a third party? And once you do come to a certain terms, what you say is appropriate risk uh, tolerance for business. Can they be making mistake that they may be taking too much liberty or you will say, okay, business willing to take that much risk, it's okay with me. Or would you fight back because you have the business's best interest in mind? But think about it a little bit. Please stay tuned. Listeners will be right back. And Arun, this is a question for you when we come back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Arun, the big R word, which is the risk. Business sees risk differently. And IT leaders, of course, like the security leaders here, CISOs, would look at it differently. Ideally, they should look at it the same way. First is, is, is there a common understanding of what risk is? And do we see eye to eye on that uh, definition? And secondly, 
if business is trying to move it forward and just because of that, they become overzealous and they try to undermine what they feel is just about enough risk prevention or, or the levels that they're playing, it is, it is too liberal. Do you feel it is the duty of the CISO to push back? Or risks should be seen as one benchmark, once established, we just follow it and let business drive how much risk they're willing to take and we'll follow orders. Um, I think uh, it's incumbent on the CISO to drive the conversation in partnership with the business because I think as things have changed and the CISO has become more of a business leader than ever before, especially in this era of distributed work, uh, I think it's very important for the CISO to lead that conversation. Uh, and the reason I say that is is the fields of enterprise risk, security, and privacy are converging now. And the only one who can see it clearly is like, like a ship's captain's CISO. And before I answer your question, so I can frame my answer properly, I submit to you some key tenets that are very, very important as a CISO going forward uh, to frame my answer. Number one, align cyber strategy with business strategy, because you've got to be able to enable the business. Jake touched upon that. Baseline and track your program maturity. Coordinate with enterprise risk management, because typically enterprise risk management works in a vacuum and they sort of throw darts but you got to work with them to make sure they understand and respect how CISOs are valuing the different risk parameters, right? Uh, <clears throat> executive and cross-functional support is very, very important because the thing is you cannot fight the battle alone. You've got to form an InfoSec council with executive leaders, meet with them from time to time, beginning of the year, every three or four months, so they can understand, okay, how you're progressing. And actually, one of the things that I've done right in the very beginning is center my cyber strategy to an enterprise risk assessment. I generate something like a Gartner quadrant or business risk quadrant and then tie those risks to business uh, strategy, right? So they can understand it and talk that language. And then just actually having good processes like focusing on security across the systems acquisition development lifecycle, having a playbook for cloud services. Jake touched upon that earlier. But most importantly, harnessing trusted partnerships across the enterprise, right? Because if you found and your cyber strategy on these key tenets, now you're in a different position because you've become a partner to the business. You've extended that federation and you're having these regular conversations. So now to answer your question directly, I think uh, I see the role of the CISO evolving. Uh, <clears throat> now, back in the day, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago, there was a technical CISO. Then this was a business CISO. Now we are more in the era of the risk-based CISO, and there's also a transformational CISO. And I don't want to get caught in the organizational reporting structure, but I would say sometimes CISOs have to play across all levels. And it's the CISO's job now because they are the, I would say, the leader, like the ship's captains to manage risk and to partner with enterprise risk, privacy, and risk management to actually frame how risk can be used as an enabler and competitive advantage so that businesses can walk that fine balance and fulcrum between value protection and creation. So I think CISOs need to lead that conversation. And this is why I think in some companies now, the CIO even reports to CISO because companies see that it's all about cyber risk and the CISO has become a risk-based and a transformational leader from some companies. Hope that helps, Sanjokov. Did it resonate at any level? 
No, it did. And Jake, I'd like to build on that. So, so Arun mentioned about partnership, right? So you could have the CISOs and the business leaders sing Kumbaya and be all buddies. And they take a common um, definition of risk or a certain benchmark of risk uh, tolerance and run that business. But would it not be a good idea to look at risk outside in and establish benchmark based on what makes sense to a third party who is looking at that business and saying for this business type, this is the risk versus leaving it to human emotional decision on what risk should be for a given business at a given time? Um, I can give you a short answer that I would say yes, <laughs> but that wouldn't be as much, uh, enter- as much entertainment and probably ask, lead to a lot more questions. But the shorter answer is yes, you want the outside in perspective. Um, because I think part of it gets down to, as we assess risk, we do it fundamentally how we defend the enterprise. You're always trying to think, uh, what is somebody going to do to me? So that's why I want to analyze risk that way. You know, what, what, how do I look to the outside world? More importantly, how do I look to my shareholders, um, the board, and in my case, the public, because I work for a public sector entity, how are we presenting ourselves as good stewards of the public trust? And those are important questions. And so I think part of that is in how we manage risk. And we would think about it in terms of what would your stakeholders think? you know, of how you're approaching this issue. And I think that's an, just an important question to ask. So I think that, that that's a big part of that. Um, I think I like the statement about Kumbaya with business because I, I would actually like to get to that place, but I don't think any CISO is ever going to get there. Um, but we get close and we do have, we do develop meaningful partnerships. Uh, but the biggest thing is treating risk as um the fact that you, as part of the business, there's no way to get rid of it. it. People have to kind of come down to that reality. But I think oftentimes when people are trying to do something, we're not, I, I see in other, in my previous organizations and people get really passionate about this initiative that you're doing. And nobody's ever asked the question of, well, what happens if you don't do that thing? Like what, what happens if you don't do that? Are we going to lose money? Are we going to lose productivity? Is it going to affect our reputation? I mean, if we do do this thing you're talking about? Is it going to make us more money? Is it going to improve our reputation? Sometimes that question's not asked. And I think one of the things that the CISO can really weigh in on, um, particularly when it comes to IT's involvement with the business, is we can stop the tail from wagging the dog. IT has evolved over the last few decades to really sometimes be the tail that's wagging the dog. And I know you've seen that. A lot of us have seen that in organizations where IT says, hey, we have a better way to do something. Nobody asked for that, but yet IT is presenting them. This is how we're going to do it now. And I'm not saying that that's not part of IT's job, but that's a little bit about how we're engaging the process and how we engage the business processes determines how we assess the risk. So when IT says, I have a way to make that process better, but you didn't make the risk coefficient better for that process by introducing this new way of doing something. So I think to a certain degree, um, it's interesting that he mentioned, uh, that Aaron mentioned how IT and cyber are divergent. Um, and in some instances, they're having CIOs talk to CISOs a little bit more in that directive kind of um, relationship. But I think that's, de- that's derivative of the fact that people are, just in general, we're seeing that um, we have to kind of weigh in on that just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should. 
unless it's going to bring value to the organization. And I think that's really, and when you're asking that golden question about risk is, is the value that I'm bringing to the organization outweighing what it is I'm trying to do? And I think that's, it's all circular. And I know we know that, but sometimes people get lost in whatever it is, the, the effort that they're in. And I think that's where the CISO adds that value is, don't be the tail wagging the dog, but instead getting people to just stop for a second and think, what is it you're trying to accomplish? And maybe I can help you get there. And starting with those fundamental questions and really bringing back fundamental problem solving skills, you know, defining problem sets and all those things that we have to do as leaders. I would say to add to what uh, was said about the CISO being a risk-based CISO before that it was the technical CISO. I would say now we're expecting the CISO to be the leader, you know, even more so. And, and the leader is looking at a whole gambit of things. And I think now we're approaching that era where a CISO is having to be holistically involved um, in, in leadership. And I think that's kind of how I would address that. So, uh, Arun, based on the response that uh, Jake gave, he, he mentioned about the, the CISOs have to become leaders. So I have facilitated CISO level events, in-person events globally. Yeah. And when I sit with them and, and hear them talk, they don't, I mean, I'm not talking about both of you, but I've not seen many CISOs showing that confidence or even the intent to get to that role. They're very happy and content in that cocoon, but they cannot stay there because that's not going to help them do their job because it's, it's, it's comfortable for them to stay geeky and, and, you know, talk about the security side or the technical side of security versus talking risk. So 2021 will require people to come out of their shells where whosoever is in that shell, but how will they come out? Do they need external help? And if yes, how can they be helped? How can we enable them or empower them? Yeah, uh, so <laughs> it's funny that you say that's a joke. Uh, the reason for that is, you know, a couple of things. On the one side, in many organizations, there is a lack of awareness that the CISO role is that of a business leader or a ship's captain, as I said, and as a, gen, you know, all-round leader, like Jake was saying, right, an enabler. They just haven't caught up to that. But another real challenge is, uh, to your point about people being the cocoon, is that a majority of CISOs come from, you know, dedicated technical backgrounds, and they may need training and development to grow the business acumen. You know, and I started myself as a very pure technical CISO in the last decade, back in 2003, 17 years ago. And, you know, at some point, you know, in the mid of the last decade, I realized I need to grow my skills. So I uh, enrolled and completed the CIO Pocket MBA from Boston University School of Management. I took a class uh, on contract management five days to expand my business jobs, if you will, right? And over the years, I've joined a lot of uh, seminars, conferences, and so on to learn from other people. Because I think, especially in this day and age, CISOs need to be able to grow their skills and make the choice, either make the choice themselves like I did, or companies need to provide them the training, right? Uh, Something that's not as well done organizations is that, you know, there's no clear career development and succession planning strategy for interested people in CISO roles, right? We need companies to be able to give them opportunity to grow. Uh, as well, it's on us, you know, as we are early in a career to participate in like uh, these cyber groups like the Cloud Security Alliance or C- uh, 
uh, what's it called, the ISACA and so on, and get mentors in the industry that can help you, right? Uh, and I think it, it's incumbent on both sides, the organizations to realize that they need to support uh, high potential folks, but for people who are interested to take the bull by the horns and train themselves as well. And I think uh, it is something, a matter of choice, both on the organizational side as well as the personal side to grow and develop because on the other side, there is no choice because to be a ship's captain as a CISO or leader, like Jake was saying, we need to grow. There's no choice. I hope that helped. It did. So uh, now with that said, uh, Jake, have you tried something yourself or have you seen some of your buddy CISOs trying something to improve their leadership muscle or come out of their cocoon? What has the journey been like? Because many people came from the technical background and, and growing into the CISO role. Not many business people came in there. So for them to suddenly drop many, many years of grooming or training or the specific mindset. What has that journey been like if you've seen someone being successful in doing this? Well, I I think we have to accept that leadership is a separate skill set, first of all. And and, um, I remember something I read, or didn't read, it was I I attended a class that was based on one of John Maxwell's old leadership books, uh, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And he tells this joke in this um, uh, video that they used to have back when we used to watch VHS tapes, right? And, uh, and the joke was, you know, he, uh, a Native American warrior is going from village to village and he gets to this village and wants to talk to the chief. And he asks the chief if any great men were born in this village. And the chief says, no, no great men, only babies. And I think that that's important for us to realize is that you're not born to be this great. You're not born to be a great leader. You don't come into the world and you're ready to set the world on fire and you have these great ideas that are going to happen. We like to think people will do that. And certain people are charismatic and they have those skill sets um, naturally, but you have to learn to be a leader and you have to learn by trial and error. And so to, to a certain degree, what I would tell people is we say it all the time, you know, fail early, fail fast and fail often, but that's true you're not going to learn from your successes. Um, I've heard people say they'd rather be lucky than good. I disagree with that. I'd rather be good. And if it took me a long way to get there and it was difficult, I would rather do that than to be lucky because anybody can get lucky and have something work out for them. But if you actually deliberately plan something and you sought to completion, that's going to develop you. And I think we don't spend a lot of time teaching people to, to plan and problem solve. So I think in the journey People need to learn more about actual problem solving, actual planning. You know, when you're going to do something, you have to ask yourself fundamental questions. What is it you're trying to accomplish? I know you heard me say that a few minutes ago, but I say that a lot because you'd be surprised at how often I have that conversation with people. What is it you're trying to accomplish? And it's interesting because defining a problem isn't about answering a symptom. Sometimes people say, well, we're going to remediate this issue. So we're putting X on our desktops. Got it but what are you actually trying to accomplish? You know, and so what is the threat vector we're trying to mitigate against? Because maybe we could get more bang for our buck if we actually try to deal with the root cause. Um, And so I think leadership is something that just has to be taught. More leadership academies, um, and you have to flex those leadership muscles and you have to be willing to take personal risk, even if it means you may not be successful and that could 
not look favorable on you because the reason why people are leery of doing that is because as humans, we tend to be unforgiving. So I would look to other leaders in the business world and in the industry is to not be so unforgiving. As long as you're empowering people to learn, you have to accept that people are going to make mistakes. And if they, as long as they can recover from those mistakes, they can learn from those mistakes. That way they've built enough skills in their skill set that when there is a mistake that's looming on the horizon that you can't make, they've, they've learned those leadership skills to do proper planning, do proper risk assessment and have proper strategies so that there's contingencies that they plan in what they're trying to accomplish that will make them successful. And I know none of that had anything to do with cybersecurity, but leadership is again, one of those things I'm also pretty passionate about in my life. And I like to see people develop in that area. And I had my, of course, you know, my training in uniform, but I was fortunate enough to work for officers that gave me those opportunities to fail. And I'm thankful for that. And they also taught me along the way and helped me pick myself back up and learn from those mistakes. And I think that, you know, so that's what I try to do to other, to, for other people in my organizations that I work in or people that I mentor. So that's what I would kind of put it out there is just leadership is fundamentally need to be taught as a skill and a skill set. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Arun, when we come back, let's try to come up with ways, or maybe you have a way already to tie security budgets to risk management or improvement in risk management and business growth. That's what business says you got to show. What kind of metric would that be? What kind of formula would you use for that? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Arun, an interesting question for you. Security budgets that you are supposed to get, you got to tie them to improved improved risk management and also value creation and business growth. What would that formula look like? So uh, just uh, to a little preamble, security budgets, you're right, are typically tied to either the IT budget or risk management, right? And the goal for many companies is to compare and benchmark expenditures within the company peer group or industry. This may be helpful to some extent, but in my opinion, it's a limited and very myopic way to bracket the value to the business, the information security function modern era. So a couple of things. Every year we need to do an enterprise risk assessment and adapt your program maturity, know where you are. One of the things that I found very, very useful, and it's a valuable framework that was actually developed by the 
uh, Intel Corporation. It's called the Business Value Analysis uh, Framework. And what happens is it's a, actually a model tied to three dimensions. Uh, they are the functional fit, the organizational fit, and the financial value for any projects that you conduct. And there's various different... <clears throat> I, I guess choices you have to make on a scale of one to five and variety of questions. But the end result of uh, this is because embedded in the functional fit are elements linked to organizational strategy, culture, etc. Then the uh, also the technical fit takes into account the architectural alignment, integration with existing security tools, and so on. Ultimately, what happens is potential investments are plotted in a bubble chart quadrant of business value versus functional value. So what you want to know is how are investments doing or potential projects, right? And if they come up in the top right-hand corner, the quadrant, the high business value and high functional value, I think those are investments you want. And that's a two-parter because you do that when you're going out to ask for funding, but you also go in after the fact and see if those investments that you made for the business, have they actually given the values that you had projected? Where are they really at? How have they driven the uh, <clears throat> value to the business by decreasing risk and so on? And I found that this methodology has been very helpful to executive leaders for many years that I've worked, because now they're able to understand that behind this model, it's a three-dimensional model and they see it better. And so then that helps you to be seen as well as someone that understands the fact that cyber and enterprise risk can have to be aligned to the business strategy, and they're able to see in a visual way something they can understand and trust as long as you go and do the due diligence every time. So that's been helpful. I think the metric-based view is somewhat limited, and that's at least been my experience anyways. Sanjog and Jake, uh, hope that resonated some love. Sure. So, Jake, you want to chime in and, and share your approach to how you came up with the magic formula? Well, I'll let you know when I do come up with the magic formula, um, but I will chime in. It's, I think that we're long since graduated past FUD, and, I, and, and I'm still shocked that in coming in 2020 and 2021, which is looming on the horizon, you'll still run into CISOs every once in a while that will use fear, uncertainty, and doubt because they'll prey on emotion to get what they want. And as we know, that's only good for maybe one fiscal cycle, if, you, if that. And I do agree with Arun that metrics, you know, especially when it comes to security, you are trying to figure out what metrics actually matter to people because things that matter to us as cybersecurity professionals actually have very little meaning a lot of times to the business. Um, so that's a tough one. Uh, and you can't really align it with IT-centric metrics either because, again, those aren't the same things that we're looking at. I could really care less how many tickets are closed in a given month, for example. You know, that, that has nothing to do with my world or very little to do with my world, I'll say. Um, the types of tickets, sure, but, you know. So when we start looking at how to establish that value, it's um, where... I always kind of try to tie it to what's important to the organization. And so for us at Metropolitan, for example, I look at things uh, from a public sector perspective and say, hey, what is it that would be the most impactful on us um, that, would, that would be damaging to our image and or the public trust? And so let's align our value based on that, but keeping in mind that we have to 
take into consideration what is the most important thing that we're doing and that core competency is for us to move water. And so any efforts that we put into cybersecurity, for example, have to be complementary to that. And so is it going to help us gain better awareness? Is it going to help us have better stability of the system? Uh, but th those are the kind of questions that I kind of look at. When I was at the county uh, before coming to Metropolitan, I kind of looked at it the same way. County was a little bit more complex because we had 26 different entities at the county. Each was essentially their own business with their own lines of business within those organizations. And so it's always been a little bit of a challenge. So my perspective on it is always a little unique because I look at it from the perspective of the public trust and what is impactful if something was to happen to us and how um, that's going to come out as far as what our investment was to prevent these things from happening. But again, I try to stay away from the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So that's kind of walking a line a little bit. But um, it's different uh, from public sector perspective because we don't have the same um, financial goals or the same uh, financial obligations, if you will, that public sector or private sector has. And so when we answer to our boards, it's more about policy issues and how we're maintaining stability and those kind of things. And are we being good stewards of the taxpayers' dollars as opposed to um, how profitable we're going to be? Um, and so that's a little bit different, but I do like to think of the profit centers in sense of that, uh, that we're not being wasteful and how we apply the use of cybersecurity controls against um, our organizational lines of business and technologies that we're looking to procure uh, we're always looking to also give back a little bit. So we're always looking for a way that we can improve our budget, but also give back a little bit and, and get rid of things that don't work or that we don't need anymore. Or maybe we can obsolete them through a process change while we're evolving. And so I always kind of try to tie that to a strategic initiative as well. And then I can communicate a strategic level plan when we're asking for more money, because then I can show where the money is going to be spent along a strategic roadmap over the next five to seven years. Um, we're keeping in mind that that's adjusted just about every year to every two years based on how things are going. But the general direction that we're going, we always try to maintain about the same. Um, and again, for me, it works out pretty easily because we say, I keep the conversation about cybersecurity being a public safety issue. And so when we, are focusing our efforts, we always kind of keep that in mind that we have this strategic vision of improving public safety and cybersecurity. And so it, it becomes a little bit easier to drive that conversation. Very, very different from the world that Aaron is in, in that respect. But I don't think uh, what Aaron is doing is, 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 I'm sorry, I'm trying to do a way to word this. What Aaron is suggesting is actually very applicable. And it'd be something I would probably want to add to our toolkit at Metropolitan but the outcomes that we're looking for are a little bit different. And so the way we have to kind of phrase what we're doing is a little bit different. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So Arun, uh, building upon what we need to do in terms of uh, the budgets, but the next come is, okay, I give you the money. Well, how, would, how would you be effective as a security group? So that means you need to have the right culture. You got to have the right org structure. You got to have the right talent. What is your recipe for 2021 that you are cooking so that you're ready and you're effective? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the things we read all the time is there's like, uh, Jake will probably laugh, uh, probably 3 million open positions in cybersecurity worldwide. They say that, right? 
And that number keeps going up, especially with the exponential growth of the IoT and everything. So we have to try to sort of bridge that gap somehow. So the first thing from a cultural perspective, we have to start with that, is the ability to leverage those partnerships with the business uh, and across the enterprise to develop and communicate a unified vision, right? And collaborate and share information with them, but also focus on cost optimization and program execution uh, because you've got to be able to fund your resources that you have, especially in manufacturing, uh, you know, we lost businesses also. These are key and embrace change management. Uh, and we need to probably add security operations resources and other stuff, but it all depends. So how are you going to determine what you need to do? The first step is to build out a detailed services and comp uh, <clears throat> competency framework with the skill sets that you need to support the services you have today, right? And then determine the gaps between your current state services and your future state services to you know, have a strategic hiring plan. And this has to be done you know, every six months, every year, because the challenges uh, keep increasing out there. So how do you mitigate those risks? Uh, and the thing is, we already know that there is a shortfall of talent in the industry. So there's some strategies that we can use. The first thing is you've got to define an appropriate mix of in-house and outsource services, right? Uh, because you can't insource everything. Uh, it your cost will get out of hand. But then for those services that you have in-house, you've got to conduct cross-training across the service tiers, like folks who are in the identity management should be trained in uh, you know, security operations and so on. The managed services are key. You've got to be able to find the sweet spot at the appropriate scale that you can actually balance and deliver services economically and cost-effectively, right? The other thing we need to do is, of course, leverage training and development and succession plans. And I know in security, sometimes that's not done. And whether organizations are asking you at a hierarchical level, you need to do it anyway. Because once you do that and you know what your gaps are and where you need to go, then you can negotiate some cost savings to sort of self-fund certain key roles to the extent you can. But also allows you to develop a grassroots talent pipeline by partnerships with universities and so on with like things like students and co-ops, right? The goal here is to identify talent early and strengthen your pipeline. Uh, and last but not least is to build affiliations with industry groups and universities to identify interested talents and help get more you know, young people into the industry, both uh, from a diversity perspective uh, uh, and skills perspective as well. I think it's a very multidimensional approach. There's no one thing that you can do, but I think this is a very in-depth, you know, layered strategy that you've got to use for talent management, especially in this modern era. So one last question I'll ask you, Jake, is about the specific leadership set of muscles you will build. If you had to fix something in you, Jake, what would you do to be better ready for 2021? And time permitting, I'll ask, like to ask Arun you as well. Um, other than lose the 25 pounds of COVID weight I put on, um, other than that, uh, something I'd like to improve on me for 2021 is I, I, I really um, want to improve uh, my relationships with the um, units outside, continue to build on the relationships outside of IT. But more importantly, I want to improve on the relationships within IT. I've, I found that it's um, 
sometimes in my my work and how I build programs, sometimes I find myself a little bit at ends with my fellow IT people, just because, um, you know, we're changing their world. So when we come up with a solution and says, hey, we're going to move this, you know, endpoint protection to a cloud-centric service. Now the people that manage that AV server cluster that's existed for time immemorial, they're they're thinking, oh, you're taking away my job. So I think I'd probably want to improve how I do that. And one of the things that I want to do in 2021 is I'm adopting this uh, training strategy. And it kind of goes along with what Arun said, it's cross-training, but I'm a little bit more broadly, is in addition to developing our portfolio for managed services or things like that, that we want to implement in Metropolitan, I'm really looking at uh, pushing this idea that every IT professional is a security professional first or cybersecurity professional first. And so we're really looking at um, trying to develop a training program that, that stems from the top all the way down across IT verticals. And that includes myself in that, that role. So what is it I need to get better at? In 2021, and there's a couple of things that I, I have on the horizons for educational goals. Um, I would like to look at um, looking at some illegal education in 2021. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to manifest yet, but I am uh, considering that, and because I think that I need to improve those chops in order to uh, better work with our uh, general counsel and other um, uh, lawyers outside of our organization when we're developing our uh, relationships. And also, again, like I said, the uh, I want to really build this training model that has the right matrices to show that every IT professional can be a cybersecurity defender so we can develop some depth in the organization to maybe address that 3 million uh, employee shortfall. Because if I have people that are already hardening servers because they work in a team that manages our domain controllers and our servers, then I don't necessarily have to worry about hiring an IT security person or cybersecurity person to come in. 30 seconds. So anyway, that's kind of what I'm looking at uh, for 2021 is really improving uh, that, that, that training and that collaboration space. All right. Total of 15 seconds, maybe a couple of words in. Arun, which muscle are you going to fix quickly? Yeah, yes. Uh, I would continue to strengthen my change leadership uh, muscle because it will help uh, in this uh, modern era with all the threats out there uh, because it will help me be a better business leader as a CISO by leveraging things like collaboration, communication, envisioning and storytelling, relationship management, program management, negotiation and vendor management, and strategic cost optimization. Once again, thank you so much, Arun and Jake, for sharing your insights and thoughts about how CISOs can gear up for 2021 and be seen as a business leader. Thank you. Thank you, Sanjok. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. And listeners, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Please connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Pinterest, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as all other major channels where you listen to podcasts. Once again, thank you for listening to CTN. This is Sanjog All, your host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.